I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I don't give a shit if you think I'm a good writer. You're an idiot. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a a writer, writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Leah Carroll, who is a writer, researcher, editor, and the author of Down City, A Daughter's Story of Love, Memory, and Murder. She's written for publications including the New York Times, theatlantic.com, Refinery29, The Oprah Magazine, The Cut, and Business Insider. She joins us from her apartment in Brooklyn. Hello. Welcome, Leah. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is a treat. We both read uh, Down City and loved it. Yes. So, so much. But I love hearing that because um, I think there are so few people who read the book who don't know me. Mm. Oh, <laughs> give me a break. Are you serious? Like, personally. So it's always really thrilling when a total, like, well, I'm, I now kind of know you guys, but when somebody's like, I read your book and I definitely don't know you. And like your aunt definitely didn't make me go buy it. Oh. That's always, always very exciting thing. I will say like every once in a while, someone on Twitter will be like, I need a true, like a really good true crime. And your book is always mentioned. Definitely. It's always like, someone will be like, Oh, down city. So good. Well, it, you know, it's funny that you say that because um, it, you know, it, it's a, it's about my mom's murder at these sort of, by these sort of like low level mafia guys. And there's mm-hmm. this whole mafia history of Rhode Island that's just like wild. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of made a decision early on that I was like not gonna, I wasn't gonna, like that story, that the patriarch family story maybe hasn't been told, but the story of like guys who kill people, mm-hmm. like that's been told. And so I wanted to write about my mom and then my dad 
you know, kind of had a slow suicide and died when I was 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me, the comments I get because people are like, love the first half where she talked about the mob. Second half mm-hmm. where she talked about her complicated relationship with her dad was so boring. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah. I, I, I see what you're saying. Like, I I do think like the the true crime community has like a formula that they're looking yes. for, and that can be that can be rough. But <laughs> like, I feel like r- right now the like the people who are doing the very best true crime are doing it in a way that's just totally different. So, you know, mm-hmm. you have like Sarah Wyman, mm-hmm. you have Emma Copley Eisenberg, mm-hmm. you have. I'm going to like miss so many names of people who are amazing. Rachel Monroe, like who are just doing these totally just as fascinating, just as like kind of like grab you and you want to just keep on going, but um, complex and like force you to sort of think critically about your own beliefs and choices. And that I think is a great thing. And so I think I came out right when that started. And so like immediately had this circle of like, support mm-hmm. um uh elon green's the last call killer so good um i have not read that yet but i have it on hold at the library and i'm very excited to read it i read it and it it's the only book i read during the pandemic <laughs> oh, you're not alone I, I, yeah i just i maybe i read like one other sort of like Tana French kind of style book, mm-hmm. but I just, yeah, it was, it was rough, but yeah, it's a, it's like, that's how good it is. It's the only book I read during the pandemic. Mm, I can't wait. Elon Green, come on the pod. Yeah, he would. He should. He's great. He got, they raved about him in the New York times. I fall for his uh, Rick rolling every time. Oh my God. Me too. I need a, I need a support very group. upset. <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to make you read to us. Okay, so I'm going to read because I think one of the things we had talked about where I was like, what can I talk about? I haven't, haven't, yeah, so I I got laid off at the very beginning of the pandemic from Refinery29. Um, I wound up doing a bunch of freelance writing and researching, which was great, but one of the first things I did was just, I was like, I'm going to write an essay. I'm just going to write it and publish it. And I'm not going to try to sell it because I just can't deal with anything. Mm. Um, and it is about work, um, work that is not writing <laughs> and the kind of work that I did for, for many years. Um, it is called the first two times I got fired and it was written June 16th, 2020. So it was like when I was pretty raw from getting fired. The first time I got fired, I was 15 years old and working as a telemarketer. My job was to call people from a list of leads and try to sell them a mortgage, I guess. At 39, I'm still not a homeowner, so it remains unclear to me what I was actually doing. But it didn't really matter because most people just hung up on me. Although one woman took a long pause after I introduced myself and asked with a strong whiff of accusation in her voice, are you a child? The reason I got fired was because my friend convinced me to spend my $42 paycheck on an eighth of high grade marijuana. So high grade, in fact, that adults apparently smoked it too. A fact I discovered when I ran into a friend's dad mid bong hit sitting on the weed guy's couch. I didn't really smoke much, but I was 
sort of terrified of this friend. So I handed over my $40, the purchase was made, and we went back to our house. We sat in our three season porch and smoked out of a chillum, which I learned needed to be held at a 45 degree angle for some complicated reason. And then I got so high, I literally forgot how to make words come out of my mouth and I missed my shift at the mortgage firm. My daughter has this book called, What is a Llama? The main character, a llama, is very full of herself. My husband and I don't like her very much, but our daughter loves her. There's a part where the llama goes, um, yeah. I got sheared and neither of us can stop ourselves from reading it in like the bitchiest voice ever. It's an inside joke now for whenever something bad happens. So yeah, I got sheared by the mortgage form firm, or maybe I sheared myself. Say lucky. The second time I got fired was also the first time I met a presidential candidate. I'll get to that. I was working for a man in his 70s who'd inherited a successful security guard from, firm from his father and who told me repeatedly that he was worth nine figures. He wore only purple suits because a woman had told him at some point in the previous two decades that the color was splattering on him. The suits were bespoke, tailored for him on Savile Row, and once every two weeks, he sent them via FedEx to London to be dry cleaned. He sent his regular laundry, also via overnight FedEx, he knew the president of FedEx, to Memphis. That's where he'd been born and raised and where he still had a home. He sent the laundry to Memphis because he liked the way his girl washed it. To be clear, his girl was hired help. I've never in my life seen a bleaker home than the full floor he occupied in the Sherry Netherland which is actually a landmark, incredibly expensive building. He mostly lived in the part of the floor in what's known as a classic six, but he also owned all the rest of the apartments on the floor and used them as storage. Uh, just full of old contracts, suits, and thousands and thousands of photographs. There were framed photos on every surface three rows deep. Pictures he'd taken of himself with presidents, with captains of industry, pictures of awards he'd won, family vacations, and meticulously compiled photo albums of his belongings, the office furniture he kept in the empty Memphis office building, his collection of Patek Philippe watches, every single pair of the hundreds of eyeglasses he owned. I compiled that one. My first day of work, I reported to his home and we met in the small kitchen of the classic six. He stared at me and told me that one of my eyelids was droopy and he didn't like it. I do have a droopy eyelid especially if I get stressed, but literally nobody has ever noticed. I also have an astigmatism in the same eye, so one lens of my glasses is slightly more magnified than the other, and he didn't like that either. He was at the time eating fiber cereal, one bowl of raspberries and one bowl of blueberries, all prepared by two black men who wore disposable booties over their shoes and were instructed to be silent. Immediately after his breakfast, he got on the treadmill and a nurse monitored his blood pressure as he walked slowly, huffing and wheezing. To this day, I have never met a more reviled human being. He paid his staff extravagantly. I'd been hired to write his memoirs, but only because on a gut level, he knew it was the only way to keep them working. How's it looking? How's it looking? He asked the nurse between sickly sounding breaths. Perfect, she told him. When he made his way to the bathroom to shower off, the nurse turned to me and told me she gave him the same blood, blood pressure reading every day. If she didn't, he screamed at her. Maybe you'll die, she said cheerfully. I'm putting my son through college. 
The nurse's real charge was the man's wife, who a decade earlier had suffered a major stroke that left her paralyzed and aphasic. Every day, my boss had a hairdresser come in to set her hair in curlers and put her in a full face of makeup. She hates it, the nurse told me. All she wants to do is sit in peace in her pajamas, but he won't let her. I keep telling her that if he goes away, we'll eat chocolate in our sweatpants all day. Instead, his wife sat fully made up to look the way she'd looked in the mid-90s at the moment when she'd had her stroke, her eyes blinking wildly behind red frame glasses like she was trying to say something in Morse code. Red is her favorite color, my boss told me. It is not, the nurse told me in a furious whisper. Despite all the hired help, the home was filthy. It was filled with expensive dark wooden furniture so dusty that the lacquer had begun to peel. And hanging in a dim corridor that connected the kitchen to the study was one of only 26 official copies of the Dunlap broadside of the Declaration of Independence. The glass was so grimy, I could barely make out the words. The other copies are in museums, my boss told me, rubbing his hands together like a cartoon villain. This is a cliche, I know, but I swear to you, it's what he did. But this one is mine. This was all on my first day. I ran to the bathroom and texted my husband, I don't think I can do this. It's flowers in the attic meets Rosemary's baby with a little sprinkle of the human centipede. Anyway, the presidential candidate. I only lasted about two and a half months, but that was long enough to witness then presidential hopeful John Kasich come to kiss the ring of my nine figure boss who had just made a large last ditch contribution to the floundering campaign. When Kasich walked into the home, he saw a bowl of chocolates and attempting to ingratiate himself, unwrapped one and popped it into his mouth. We all froze. The chocolates were at the very least 15 years old, maybe 20. Did we just poison John Kasich? He, let, he lived, but officially suspended his campaign a few days later. My boss finally fired me after a series of confrontations. Once after demanding to know if I was pregnant, he handed me a tissue full of his toenail clippings. Per his instructions, I was to flush them down the toilet lest somebody get a hold of them and put a curse on him. I objected to the question and the task and was summarily dismissed from my position as his biographer soon after. It was late May on the day I was fired. I sat on a fountain in Rockefeller Center, ate a cheeseburger and was flooded with a sense of relief. My boss paid me $10,000 to submit a letter of resignation so that I wouldn't collect unemployment. And my husband and I used the money, among other expenditures, money to, among other expenditures, spend a week in Miami. He'd never been to a beach in Florida and was shocked by how warm the Atlantic Ocean was. We swam and floated for hours. I felt like weeping with joy and gratitude that I never had to go back to that man's apartment. Should I have saved that $10,000? Of course I should have, but I didn't. A few months ago, the woman who I worked in the office with texted me. How are you doing? She asked. I'm so good. How are you? Is redacted. Dead yet? I texted back. I'm so happy to hear that, she said. I'm great. And yes, he is. Lately, I find myself wondering a lot about that original copy of the Declaration of Independence and what the family will do with it. It's been especially in my mind over the past few weeks that opening salvo written with such gusto by a group of men who enslaved human beings and valued wealth above all else. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instructed among men, are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. My biggest regret of the whole experience, that John Kasich somehow managed not to poison himself with a 15-year-old Hershey's kiss he ate in exchange for a $25,000 check. Holy shit. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was fucking dying the whole time. <laughs> what is with rich people's filth? Like, I, I feel like that is a real thing. It was the most... I mean, it's so interesting. I don't know if people outside of New York are like familiar with the idea of what a classic six is, but if you've ever seen Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, they all live in a classic six. So, you know, it's like this very particular layout that's not actually like very bright or even really that comfortable. Mm -hmm. And um, it kind of has a lot of these like little warrens and stuff, but he insisted that polish would take the veneer off of his wood furniture and 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 he everybody was so afraid of him that they just like never they like wouldn't do anything that might possibly make him a sweat so everything was just grime everywhere i mean i feel like that's a thing like i'm thinking of like the queen of versailles that was that the name of that documentary where they just let their dogs poop everywhere Mm -hmm. you know like and and like i personally have known wealthy people who live in filth you know and it's just like it's a very particular uh it's a very particular lifestyle i would say it's a very particular lifestyle and he was interesting because he thought of himself as like quite the philanthropist (laughs) and he was always like you know like i'm gonna lift african-american children out of out of the inner city poverties and oh i want to be, to be like oh my god don't put them in your house it's too <laughs> disgusting <laughs> it also seems like like older rich people have chosen a time in which they have frozen themselves yes like with the chocolates that are 15 years old or and his like wife god that was such of- a striking yes. part of his wife jesus it was so his wife was actually like his wife was upsetting. He like he would just roll her out in a wheelchair. Oh my like, god. Like make her up like a living doll and and she couldn't talk, but she was fully she was fully like aware of every single thing that was happening. She was just aphasic, so she couldn't express it. And like she was just she was just it was like the perfect relationship for him. Oh my God. <laughs> and he would always talk about like you know how much he did for her he made her feel good by getting her like I can't imagine if somebody made me get up and like put on makeup and like set my hair in curlers every day like I'd be furious mm-hmm. um so it was it was it was quite sad another really quick great anecdote about him is that we he used to he used to force us to go to these three hour lunches with him Jesus. And, and they would be, it would be like four courses and he would, 
he wouldn't tell you what you had to order, but he would strongly imply what you had to order. But they were at the most amazing restaurants in New York City. So it was like I would go to Les Bernardins like three times a week. <gasps> oh, my gosh. I even know but, what I was just going to say, even I know that one. <laughs> And I like came home from work one day and I was like, oh, I had to have lunch at Le Bernardin again with Lipman. And Nick was like, you know, Le Bernardin is like, like one of the top like five like restaurants in the world. And I was like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> they I ruined it. I can't sit with that man. And the best part was so Eric Repair, who is like the celebrity chef who mm-hmm. cooks, came over to say hello. And he had just written, <laughs> he had just written a memoir that he'd like poured his heart and soul into and it was like a memoir of his childhood and his like beloved mother who had recently passed away and how he got his love of food and Livin was like why would I want to read a book about your mom oh no (laughs) (laughs) he really was (laughs) he's like I want to nobody's gonna read that I want to read about like Bernard Dan oh oh did Eric Repair say Okay, fuck you. <laughs> Get out of my Eric Repair is just like this fucking guy. Like, <laughs> which is interesting because as like famous and wealthy as Eric Repair is, he's still in the hospitality industry, right? So yeah. he still has to like cater to these although <laughs> he did get banned <laughs> he did get banned from Lee Bernardin for a while because one time he was there. <laughs> He was there. While, he was there while the three tenors were there, uh-huh. and they. Okay, I'll read this story. <laughs> they they had just performed and were having like this very celebratory dinner because they're the three fucking tenors, and they were disturbing him because they were like loudly drinking wine and you know oh like God. enjoying life generally, and um, <laughs> he went up. I don't know which of the three. Three tenors it was when he went up to him and he just clapped his hands really loud in the guy's oh my face. God. <gasps> I was like, you are and he was like, you are disturbing my wife's dinner. Oh my, oh my god. And so the next day, um, this girl, Laura, the one who sent me the text, who was like my only saving grace there, um, got an email that was like, We're afraid Lee Bernadette is like not up to Mr. Lipman's standards. Oh like when he feels that, and so then he had to like sort of come crawling back and, and give them money. But yeah, anyway, digression, digression. I, I just, I need, I need, I need like 13 chapters on this. I was going to say, I would read a whole <laughs> book about that in a heartbeat. Or, I mean, just, I wanted that to keep going. That was unreal. You just you are like, also an amazing reader. Yes. Like, uh, I was going to say the same thing. You, you just like are alive when you're reading this. Oh, thanks. It seems like you see him so clearly. Like, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I worked at a, I was like a hedge, a hedge fund assistant for like five years. Mm. because I was working in book publishing. I was making no money and was basically just being treated like crap. Mm. And a friend was like, just go to like this recruiting firm and see if you can get like a job. You're going to basically be doing the same thing, except you'll be making twice as much. And I wound up working for this um, hedge fund that is like very well known. Um, This guy, Bill Ackman, who is a billionaire um, who shorted the coronavirus because he's, terrible um and uh it was wonderful like my boss was like amazing I made gobs and gobs of money like paid off student loans 
like, it was, I mean, it was not what I wanted to do with my life. And I actually sold the book and that's when I left. But like to this day, my boss and his wife remain like close friends of me and my husband. Wow. He was like at my very first reading at Barnes and Noble, like Uh so proud. So (laughs) I I, I say that to say that it's not just like an eat the rich thing. Right. Although like Roy, sorry, my old boss's politics are like terrible, Mm -hmm. but, um, they weren't terrible in a like racist. I mean, they were terrible in that they fed into sort of the systemic racism and poverty of, of the United States, but he was a first generation immigrant from Israel. And like, he just wanted to keep as much money as he could. So there, and there was like, there's this divide between people who are like very honest about that, who are like, I want to be rich. I want to stay rich. I want to like, make sure my like children are rich. My parents like, you know, don't have to die in some crappy nursing home and like, I'll do what it takes to get there. Mm -hmm. And that's capitalism and it's terrible and unethical, but it's also just to me, it was preferable to somebody who was just like a real piece of shit who everybody in the world hated, but who saw himself as this like very great, gracious man. How did it feel to write that? Like, did it feel like, especially at that moment in the pandemic, you know, like, was it cathartic? Was it like, I still got it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I think, well, you know, I was a refinery. So I was like, I've, I have really bad imposter syndrome. I didn't publish Down City until, gosh, 27. I mean, I was like well into my late 30s when I published Down City. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if it was good. Like I didn't even, you know, I just, I was like, is it good? Is it not good? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I accepted this job at Every Fun in 29 working as like just, you know, pushing out takes and junk, making $65,000 a year is like a 35 year old woman who had made $200,000 a year at a hedge fund and, oh you know, sizable advance. And, and I thought that was like, I was like, I'm so grateful that they're taking me on. I was so, I was so like, uh, you know, you like know. you just couldn't see yourself clearly, like where you were in your career. Yeah, I was like, I know I'm a writer, but. <laughs> oh, look at you. <laughs> See what I did there? No, but it's true. I think that's why I like that when I noticed you. I was like, I know I'm a writer, but does everybody else, like, I need to, like, prove myself. And at every other job I've ever had, like, I've had the most wonderful bosses with the, mainly with the exception of this guy. Every time I have a review, they're like, Leah. I like you so much. You're really funny. Um, Like, love having you in the office. Can you try to not be such a terrible assistant? Like, (laughs) you're you're literally always sending me. Like, one time, like, like, (laughs) I sent my boss to, like, California instead of D.C. Like, I I I am... One time he, he, he had a delivery of these shirts from that, do you know that clothing store, Brioni? Yeah, yeah, it's sure. Like no, I don't. very expensive men's clothes. And I was like, that, that, that. And I was like talking to somebody else while I opened the, the package and I pulled the shirts out and I had just cut them all in. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, <laughs> my like, God. He walked by and was just like, Ugh. 
<laughs> so, but I didn't, I was like, I didn't, I, I just didn't care. And it was super apparent. And I was like, and the only person who could sort of put up with him because he was a little diva-ish, but I didn't mind. And then when I like got to refinery 29, I was like, okay, I'm writing, like, this is serious. And so I was like working for scraps, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to like prove to them and to myself that like no I'm really like really a real writer and like I know this is just like a crappy like content farm but I'm gonna like do like real journalism and um uh and then I was there for four years and I organized a union and I just became like incredibly invested in the lives of these like younger women who were coming up and being like this is not how people should treat you (laughs) because also my dad worked um my dad was not a writer at a newspaper but he he worked at Providence Journal his whole life. And like, mm-hmm. I know newspaper culture and it used to be that you did that and they took care of you and like you stayed there. And I was like, this is not what, this is not right. Um, so when I got like, like, I got let go during the panic, but I definitely also got let go for rabble rousing. I did, <laughs> I did, um, I did the thing I've always wanted to do, which is I like, told my the woman who was firing me to fuck off um and I was like I was like you know what happened I was crying at first because it's really devastated I really loved all the women and I swear I will stop talking after this no um, this is about no, you yeah talk keep going I'm drinking wine also with my oh, yeah, keep drinking um, <laughs> you're good um but uh the you know they were giving me the whole spiel and I was like I had literally, I knew that, we, you know, we knew the layoffs were coming and I was like, oh, okay, I'm like so distracted. I can't do anything. I'm going to go get a COVID test. <laughs> <laughs> so I was walking to get a COVID test and I got a text from this woman, Julie, who was like my manager. And she was like, hey, can you hop on a, on a Google chat? And like insult to injury, I did not have that program downloaded on my phone. So I had to like <laughs> download the app on the sidewalk knowing full well that they were going to use it to fire me and um at first I was like I was crying really hard it sort of like took me aback like how invested I felt and then and then she said to me on a side note Leah I want to say I just think you're such a talented writer and like my sadness just turned into like white hot rage and I was like I've never ever ever done it because I've always you know it's like you have to like don't burn any bridges. But I was just like, fuck you. I was like, you're a liar. I was like, I make, I make now thanks to the union, $71,000. And I have an 11 month old daughter. I really hope that $71,000 like really just like works that bottom line for vice because like, you know, like just like, this is, this is, ridiculous Mm -hmm. and like and also like I don't care if you think that was the moment where I was like I don't give a shit if you think I'm a good writer you're an idiot like (laughs) your opinion means literally nothing to me and you've just taken away my job and my daughter is 11 months old and it was like so early on in the pandemic she was not in any kind of daycare or anything And I had had a conversation with her like two weeks earlier where I had said to her, I was like, this, this, this month has been the hardest month I think I've had since the year that my dad died. And, 
And then, like, when they were going through their, like, whatever, like, spreadsheet where they were, like, oh, yeah, they were, like, let's get rid of Leah. Oh, my <laughs> and then God. I was, like, the temerity to be, like, but you're you're such a good writer. You're really going to, like, land on your feet. And I was, oh. like, bitch, I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, like, in that moment, do you feel like, you know, because you had taken the job at Refinery29 to sort of, I don't know, get your chops or whatever, or, like, prove that you – you know, had the the stones to do this or that you were this. Did you feel like saying fuck off that you were sort of like, no, I really do have, I really am a writer. I really do know. Or did you, or do you still feel like you run into like, I need to prove that I'm the kind of writer that I, that I want to be. I do, you know, so I did a bunch of like really heavy investigative reporting um, for long form journalism I have to say this and, and it's like so cheesy, but I, so I was let go. I was immediately like, I was immediately just overwhelmed with like wine and booze and snacks. And <laughs> like, everybody was just like so incredibly lovely to me. And then immediately after that overwhelmed by people who were like, Hey, I have this opportunity. I have this opportunity. I have this opportunity. Oh, and I was like, it was I felt so grateful and I felt like they like, I was like, okay, like I, I didn't just waste my time. Like the, like this was, this was all worth it. But, um, and so honestly, like the, the, I was really lucky, like the freelancing thing I did had like a, I always had something I was either doing research or I was writing a piece or whatever. And every single thing that came to me, came to me from a friend and um, that's, I, I really think that was like the kind of push it took for me to be like, oh no, like I'm maybe somebody that like people just like want to read and like, maybe I'm just like, I'm good at this and I'm good at like putting together the pieces of the puzzle and making it into a narrative. Um, and also on top of that, I, like, you can be a nice person and have friends and like be really supportive of one another. And it's like, I'm Jewish. So it's like, you know, the idea of like a, a mitzvah is like, you just put a mitzvah out into the world. Like you don't put a mitzvah out in the world expecting it to come back to you. You do that. It negates the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So like the idea that like I had ever done things and then like the mitzvahs were coming back to me was like very overwhelming and, and still is, if I think about it too much, I'll, I'll, cry out of gratitude was the freelancing leah the 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 logical next step for you what you really were looking to do in some capacity whether or not you knew where that would be after down city or was it the kind of thing where you thought hey maybe i'll do this for a while i'll figure out what my next book will be and then when i really have that maybe i'll step back or wh what in your mind was kind of did you have like an ideal trajectory or was the path you took really what you had envisioned for that the latter, absolutely. So I was like, okay, I've always kind of really wanted to be freelance. This is like a, a you cannot get hired right now. The world is ending. Um, uh, I have all these like cool opportunities. Um, but my husband also works in digital media. So our lives are like really precarious. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, he is like, he's, a, he's an editor and he's so talented. And when our daughter was seven weeks old, 
he was let go. And it was like, it's like this, you know, you work someplace for six years and then they pivot and they let you go. And then you work someplace for six years and then they pivot and they let you go. And so um, I was nervous about freelancing because like he was the one who had health insurance because we live in a country where your health insurance is tied to your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so while that was something that I really wanted to do, it all became very different because I have Ruthie. Like it, it, it would have been, if I had been a little bit younger, if I didn't have a baby, like it, I would have just been like, yeah, I'm going to like go all out. I'm going to go for broke. I'm going to like write a book. I'm going to um, do this freelancing. And I did actually work for a while with a, a very good friend, Steph um, DeLuca, who is a, she was a writer on the deuce, her and Megan Abbott co-wrote like the greatest episode of the deuce. Mm. And we did that for a summer. And that was just like, I had never, like we just like immersed ourselves in it and it was wonderful. And, um, and actually now I have a stop job at NBC universal, uh, working, working for, um, oxygen. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's like it, and, and everybody is very nice. And I think one of the big things I learned is that like, it's a job. Mm Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, I don't know if I really answered your question. I no, didn't. You did. I'm no, you like, totally did. I'm, yeah. I wish I could be like my friend Anna Peel, who is like a brilliant profiler. Um, she just profiled for New York Magazine um, Bravo, basically dealing with like the notion of like social justice and Black Lives Matter and like wow. how you oh account for all that. And it's like the be- everybody should read it. It's the best piece. But she's also just like in general, a, a brilliant profiler, uh, or journalist. And but her profiles really shine. And um, uh, she's like she she was like, oh, from GQ. And after that, she was just like, fuck this. No, <laughs> like, I know that my ideas are great. I'm going to like go places. I'm going to demand the right amount of money. I'm going to tell them I have to keep my IP and she does it. And she's, she, and her body of work is amazing. And, and she's like, she's like such a star. Um, I'm not an Anna. (laughs) I wish I could be. Well, I was just so curious because down city is, you know, we opened talking about how it is true crime, but obviously when I think of that book, I think of it as, I mean, it's obviously just the most personal story that you could tell, mm-hmm. period. And that was your, that was the first, that was your first book. I mean, you started with this, you know, you took the big swing with your first book is kind of what I was thinking about. And I, I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to think about what the next project would be after starting where you did, I guess. And so I was just curious if, you know, there was something where you're like, oh, man, if I, if I do write another book maybe it'll be on this or if you had something that you felt drawn to or if you know really like that was the story you really wanted to tell initially and if another book project comes down the line it'll come or I just didn't know you know what you envisioned for yourself in that way that's such a good question because it's such a good question because it's it is a question I ask myself a lot I mean I always knew that I was going to write this that book I worked on that book forever you know the the opening the opening lines of it I wrote in college um and uh I just you know I had this I had this I didn't even recognize it at the time but I had this like huge 
ragged hole in my heart from losing my dad. Mm -hmm. And that kept him in my life. And I think part of the reason it took me so long to write it is the longer I wrote it, the more I had him there. Hmm. Um, And of course, you know, like, and then the other thing was like, I always thought I was totally over my mom. And then I realized I was, I was absolutely not over that. I was furious that she had been taken from me. Mm -hmm. And then when I found out the way that she had been just, you know, her life had was just considered so worthless, not just by, you know, these, her like drug connections and stuff, but by the police, nobody was ever even charged with her murder. He went, they, they, he, I got some new documents this summer and they, it's like, it's, it's the, the guy totally confesses to the entire murder, calls her, you know, he calls her a a real piece of shit. Oh, Um, Oh my God. Um, he confirmed what I had always suspected, which was that she was a sex worker. Mm-hmm. And um, he was like, oh, she was just like a gross piece of shit. And we think she was a rat. And she was like on top of that. And they were like, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, the cops are sort of like, and and then they didn't even charge her, charge anybody with her murder. Um, so like to say that I was like dissolute. So it was a very weird thing because I, I knew that, but then I got these documents over the summer and like everything that happened along the summer, I feel like I just became incredibly radicalized. And I was like, this system is broken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I now work a lot in the sex work decrim space, mm. but I didn't want to write a book about that. I wanted to actually do something about it. And there are people who are, who, you know, are academics and who are more well-equipped to do. I have this one personal story. They have like this wealth of knowledge. Um, But what I would really like to write is a novel Hmm. where nobody from my family is in it. (laughs) (laughs) And I can make whatever I want to make happen. I was hoping Um, you would say that because after hearing you read Leah, I want you to write a novel like holy fucking shit. That was unreal. That was honestly one of my favorite readings we've had. That was just people are going to freak out real. Like that was awesome. I was like, Leah has got the right fiction. If she's not like that was even though, you know, I don't know. It just had like a fictional instinct. I feel like in the best sense, that was, I can't wait to read your fiction. Are you writing fiction right now? I'm trying. Lindsay, how do you do, how do you do it? It's really hard. Can somebody come teach me to do it? I, uh, yeah, no. (laughs) Sorry, we're busy. We are real fucking busy actually. And and do it. Listen, sometimes I take my laptop to the bathroom. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, when you have children, you have, I mean, Nick and I would first talk about when Ruth was born that like we would both take our phones into the bathroom when we went to the bathroom and like definitely just spend 10 minutes looking at Instagram Mm -hmm. and we were always like had this thing in the back of our head that like that's the moment where like some freak accident would happen and like you'd have to go to the police and be like I was just in the bathroom but like really in your heart you'd know you were just like looking at Instagram (laughs) in the bathroom (laughs) We all know. It's oh. all, we all know it's shorthand for just having a moment. It's fine. Everything's fine. Just hide when you need to hide. It's fine. Um, it's hard. Like when you write, I mean, everything is hard to write. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a memoir is a memoir is very different than writing like 
an investigative long form story. It's very different from writing a biography. It's very different from all of those things because it is novelistic in many ways. Mm-hmm. But somebody has already plotted it out for you. Right. That and seems harder. That that honestly seems harder to me. Really? <laughs> yes, it does. I I was ta- we were talking with somebody either on the show or I was talking with a friend and whoever it was was this was a nonfiction writer and she was saying people either have a fictional instinct or they have a nonfictional instinct like as their gut and I like I cannot imagine writing like having the facts in front of me and thinking oh shit I gotta hit there like you know it's like a slalom course and you gotta go through the flags like I just want to go down the mountain and make it up I have no fucking idea like maybe there's skis or not like I it that seems impossible to me for I, some I, reason. I like how Jay Robert Lennon was talking about it being or he got it from Jonathan D yeah Jonathan D right that it's his little wind-up toy yeah that, that his novel that he wanted to write a novel that was just a little wind-up toy and it really like honestly you just got to follow your little wind-up toy around and if it feels like you don't know what you're doing that's probably good <laughs> because eventually you'll be like oh okay I said the things I wanted to say in this thing now let me go back and see what I said <laughs> that's how you start shaping it <laughs> yeah yeah no that's true I guess I uh Creating a whole, I mean, I am always just in like such awe of novelists because creating, especially somebody, somebody like Megan Abbott or somebody like, um, um, oh my God, how am I possibly blanking on her name? Uh, Made for Love. Alyssa. Alyssa mm-hmm. Uh, Like. Yeah, she's amazing. She is like. <laughs> If she doesn't win a MacArthur Genius Grant, I'm gonna I am going to riot in the streets. She is like the fact that they made that book into a movie is <laughs> or into a TV series that is great. I haven't is watched like, it. Ugh. Oh, you have to watch it, <laughs> Lindsay. Have you watched it? I haven't watched it yet. We're saving it. Oh, I think they couldn't have so done good. it without her, right? Like they could not have done it without her. So thank God that she was at the oh. like, and thank God oh. anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for real. Um, but you know, I think about both. They're both write very but different books. But I, I just think about the way because the first book I read was Tampa, oh, and yeah. I, I had lived in Gainesville, and mm-hmm. so like once again, like certain scenes, just like uh, them being in the car with the windows rolled up, and it's like so hot, and they're mm-hmm. they have to roll the windows up because like the mosquitoes are everywhere, and like. Uh, scenes tend to stick with me like that, but um, so tightly plotted, so so surprising. And but you know, it's it's actually based on a true story that, and it's about a girl that she went to high school with. What the fuck? Really? I didn't know that. Tampa is, yeah, Tampa is. So if, if that gives you any hope, because Alyssa, you know, she based it on on something that actually happened. But not the famous one that's like it, right? Or is no, it? No, not Mary Kay Letourneau. No, okay, it's um, okay. it's a. Uh, is it the and, other hot blonde lady? She is hot and blonde, and she did get off at the end really? because she was too pretty to go to jail. God, that book. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, I. But you know, Megan Abbott like takes her inspirations from real life too. Yes. So like the um, the the one about. The gym, they all blend together because I've read all of her books. 
a million times. The one about gymnastics, not the one about gymnastics. Yeah. The one about gymnastics. You will know me. Oh. I, I love this fact. It comes from watching Allie Reisman at the Olympics mm. and how her parents would like every time she would do something, they would like lean to the left. Oh yeah, they were like freaking right. out. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and Megan calls it the love lean. And it was like, that was like the little nugget that she was like, that's what I'm going for. Um, What's your little so, nugget? Cause you said- I don't know, I need to find it. Okay. I guess I need to find it. I like, I like how well you handled something so far outside of like your I don't know it's just like that seems like kind of an extreme character and that felt like you handled it in a very natural way like that felt like totally within your wheelhouse like you were all over that it didn't feel like a stretch that you know so I don't know I, I feel like maybe something <laughs> maybe something way the fuck out there is what you should be handling because that was I mean, yeah maybe I should try for a made for love <laughs> yeah totally yeah, oh, hey we were talking about this with Megan Phillips here's another Megan Phillips shout out shout out Megan um she was talking about like how the hell do people write novels and alex was like you just write 200 words a day yeah it's like every day you write 200 words and like you pick up where you left off from the day before and then eventually you'll have like a big pile of words <laughs> you know, so like, does that like does that work for you though it yes. does that's literally what you do yes you? literally that is yes. literally i the thing i told megan too and i <laughs> this is i i think this is the best advice i ever received about how to write a novel is if you don't know what to do, have one person go after one thing. And it could be literal. It could be like someone going after an actual object, or it could be someone chasing a feeling, chasing a realization and start there. And when you get lost, just default to that. And eventually the text that you're writing is going to be so rich that you won't have to default to that, but it'll be like this core, you know, motive within the work that you're creating. And it's helpful to dumb it down. It's helpful just to say, I have this one character going after this one thing. And when you forget how to be a writer, which will do for months or whatever, you can just think about that and you'll have 200 words and eventually, yeah, there's a novel there. It's fine. And I will say that actually helped me, Alex, because we were just talking about that. And I was trying to decide like what perspective to write this thing I'm working on from. Right. Yes. Yes. And I could very easily say, okay, this character is after this. And then right. when I tried to say what the other characters were after, I was like, I, I really don't know. And right. it made me realize like, oh, I'm writing this book from the perspective of this one character. Right, right. Yeah. So you guys don't outline in advance? Fuck no, no way. I don't. I, and and lots of writers do, but I don't. I, I really just like to, um, I like to, I like, I just like follow. I just follow it. And I have little goals. Like I have little things like, oh, I think, you know, like I know ultimately this is going to happen. But then to get there, there's like other little things that pop up. Hmm. I think outline, I think like, I think this goes back to what you're saying, Leah, about, you know, maybe a little bit of a difference between nonfiction and fiction. I am. So, I think that in some ways I am not smart enough to create an outline. I am not smart enough to deal with actual facts in front of me. And so it's like, I'm not even going to pretend to know what's going to happen. I will just write one good sentence and then maybe 10 bad ones, but then there'll be another good one. And then I'll get rid of the 10 in between that are bad. And I, it's just like making the problem smaller than a novel and just saying, okay, here's 200 words to worry about. And eventually those 200 don't even appear in the final work, but I don't know. It's all about making the problem as small as possible so that I can handle it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and my favorite thing that I ever, and I know I've said this on the pod before, but Alexander Chi's book, um, how to write an autobiographical novel. He says that the first draft is just you telling the story to yourself. Mm-hmm. And it really is that because like those, those words that Alex was talking about, those 10 sentences that you end up deleting, those are you writing yourself up to the point, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like you're just like spinning, spinning, spinning. And then you're like, okay, that's what that was about. And when you go back and read it, you can, you'll say like, oh, I just said this like four times in a row. So I can get rid of <laughs> those other three times. And, you know, um, but if you think about it, like I'm going to write a novel, it seems so impossible it's too big you can't hold it all in your head at once you don't even know what the rules of the world you're writing are you don't know you know like and and so you have to just start you know yeah and then it becomes yours eventually it'll just feel like yours yeah (laughs) this the support is 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 so wonderful um (laughs) but you know it's it's I'm such a like dramatic human being in general that like my general writing process is like stare at blank page, like throw myself on the ground. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I destroy, I destroy my area quite (laughs) often. I destroy my area. I need to take a two hour nap because I am just, I'm stressed out. And that's why, that's why the word count, is the thing because you're yeah. like, okay, I, I just have to write, even if it's 50 words, you know, it's like my goal today is to write this many words. And so then you do that and you're like, then I'm done, you know, like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me because then it's about the goal. <laughs> yeah. It's about Speaking the goal and, and you've achieved the goal. And so you can feel good about that. You know, it's like, it's like doing your little exercise or whatever. It's like, okay, I got my 10 minutes of cardio in or whatever. I did that. And you can feel good about that. And then the next day you might feel inspired to do a hundred words or a thousand words or whatever. Um, but it, it really is just like, it is just like sitting down and forcing yourself to do the motions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you have to do the motions. Um, and that's how it grows over time. And I really, Leah, when you were talking about at the end, either, you know, right before you were let go from refinery 29 or in the, in the, in the time after just saying like, Oh man, is this, you know, feeling like maybe a lag in confidence or, or not knowing, like, I, I feel that I, I was relating so much to conversations Lindsay and I had recently about things we've been working on. Just, I feel like that's such a a hallmark of even, <laughs> working on a novel i don't know if it's the same for nonfiction. maybe it is sure it is but just literally not knowing if the whole thing is fucking garbage or if no okay this is good this is fine or maybe this is decent or i don't know just truly not knowing and i've sent the neediest text in the world to Lindsay, just saying like (laughs) wait this is this is this is good right this is fine like I don't know. You need, you definitely need uh, those people in your life that you can. You, be, uh, yeah. I mean, this summer player. that was Anna Peel was that person for me who I was like, I think that this is just, I think I should just set this on fire. Like, <laughs> and she was like, no, you know, don't, don't do that. And it's, I feel like it's become a little bit of a Twitter trope, the like, you know, the, the pitch versus like the draft I hand in or, you know, like with it's right. a very like, um, but it is a unique, I mean, it's a unique kind of thing to decide that 
you are good at. And I don't know, for me, I just like, I, the things that moved me as a kid were books. They were always books. I mean, film too. I love film. I love television. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there was something I could do that other people couldn't do, where there was like a rhythm to my sentences that I just like knew how to do. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, like, every single thing I've sent to like an editor ever, I'm like, here, here's the worst, shittiest piece of shit ever. <laughs> like, if you want to just fire me, that's fine. And then, like, sitting there refreshing, like, waiting for them to come back and be like, no, Leah, this is a masterpiece. It requires not one single edit. Like, the, that kind of, like, schizophrenic back and forth in your head, I think, is, it's become kind of a cliche, but it is, it's, it is a cliche based in truth. Yeah, yes, it is. Very real. Very yes, real. it is. I know it's like all my um, validation has to come from outside. Like I need, like, I can't know that I'm a good writer. I need like everyone to tell me I'm a good <laughs> <laughs> You know, <laughs> like at a certain point it's like, oh, I'm, I'm in crisis. <laughs> I mean, I can also just use anything to create a chip on my shoulder related to yes. this. Just fucking anything. Just absolutely the smallest piece of shit is going to enrage me and fuel like me what? for free. Oh, I, I mean, I can think of no, uh, I don't know. Let me pull up my text with Lindsay here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Just, you know, it's just the smallest bullshit. I don't know. I know we're always comparing ourselves. Yes. Just, you know, reading something and thinking that's objectively bad. And (laughs) why doesn't everybody see this as fucking garbage? I don't know. I had a, I had a public, a meltdown uh, this summer that was, or I guess this fall that was really embarrassing where somebody commissioned a writer who was not me to write about like the fandom around Dunkin' Donuts. Oh my God. And that's, wow. that's your territory. That's, uh-huh. that's my beat. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the woman who they assigned to write it is like a fucking great reporter. Like she reported the show out of it. It was like a great piece, but it was like, it was not the Dunkin' Donuts I knew. Right, um, man. And so I got really upset and I, Oh my God, I'm such a horrible human being. I got really upset. I like tweeted something really petty, which I really don't like to do um, because it just never makes you feel good. It always it doesn't. Bad. It's the worst. I know. It's the, yeah. It's the worst. And whenever it's been done to me, it, like, I just don't like to do that, but I did it. And then I, then I DM'd. I was like, I was like, this is not Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts is like, getting arrested by cops in the parking lot and like (laughs) smoking cigarettes when like you have no place to sleep for the night. And like, and the like woman, Angela Lashbrook, who wrote this great piece was like, ha ha, sorry, Leah. It's just like, you know, that's not what like most of the people who I talked about. (laughs) 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 That was their point of view. And I, I had, oh my God, this, okay. So this is, I mean this, I can't even believe I'm saying this. It's crazy. (laughs) So I had, you know, I have all these documents surrounding my mom's trial. And because it's Rhode Island, there are so many times when the characters involved do something 
horrible at a Dunkin' Donuts. Oh. So like at one point, one point they were like, okay, so we put his torso in the dumpster at Dunkin' Donuts. And they were like, oh, this is the same dumpster at Dunkin' Donuts where you dropped Joni Carroll's purse. And he's like, yep, that one. And oh. so I like, I like screenshotted that and sent <gasps> it to her. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> I was oh, like, my heart just breaks for you. <laughs> uh, I know exactly where you're coming from. I totally, uh, totally understand where you're coming from with that. It was so insane and so wrong. And I admire Angela Lashbrook a lot. I've always been like a fan of her reporting and her writing. I just like lost my goddamned mind. Um, and then like quickly recovered it <laughs> and DM'd her. And I was like, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that I did that to you. But like at, when we talk about like the little things that set us off, it's like, mm-hmm. those are mm-hmm. those it's, it's madness. It's, yeah, it is. it's utter madness. My, my dumb example is whenever people are like, who are the best Florida writers? And my name's not on the list. And I have lived in Chicago for 16 years now. And I am still like, <laughs> damn it, I'm a Florida, you know, like, excuse me, you people aren't <laughs> saying my, you know, and it's like, I am so silly about that kind of stuff. Um, do you know, I went to the University of Florida. I know. I, I know. love Florida. Yes, I do too. My daughter's middle name is Florida. <gasps> that's right. <laughs> Florida, that's such a good name. The but best. I mean, Florida, like politically is just... A, like I mean, Florida ass, is like but... literally a cesspool that is like yeah it is sinking but... into hell yes yeah yep. <laughs> like, not even figuratively but I think that that I mean I just remember my orientation at UF they were like if you have a small dog keep it on a leash yeah it'll get eaten oh by a gator <laughs> yeah. oh my god <laughs> wow well this was um quite a conversation this was this yeah this was this was one of the most fun ones we've had for sure I hope you guys so good. anything usable out of that oh my gosh this this was fantastic yeah, how about every fucking minute of it yeah leah you are fucking fascinating <laughs> i cannot wait to read your novel thank you i feel Please actually really inspired after this conversation yeah and we can be like alice did you say wait who was your friend anna this this yeah. summer was your was your um journalist friend we will be your novel friends. Oh, yeah. So just oh, text us. oh, are you kidding me? hundred yeah. percent. Like that's um, what we were born for. Okay. You said that and it's recorded. So <laughs> I mean it. Yeah. 100%. I'm totally serious. <laughs> yeah. We would love um, that. So. You guys, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you for, for coming, coming on, on Leah. God, that, that was, was so fun. That was so fun. She, I mean, we talked about wind up toy of a novel, like just mm-hmm. let her go. That was mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's like brimming with energy and ideas yes. and like, she's, she's going to do it. She's just, she just got to do it. Her, that essay that she read and her reading was fucking amazing. <laughs> she did the accent. I love when people do the I accent. Know. The first time she did it, I didn't know if she was, you know, like when someone is doing a reading and they do it for the first time and you're not sure if they just like 
fucked up or not and then you're like oh no okay this is that's the thing and then when she kept coming back to it i was like fuck yes this rules <laughs> nine figures <laughs> oh my god yeah that was great i'm i'm so happy we got to talk to her i loved down city yeah down city very amazing. moving and she i wanted to talk to her she just wrote something that came out in romper which i love oh i really love romper um and it was all about uh, uh it's called the moms who fear child uh child sex trafficking more than covid oh yeah yeah, yeah. i saw i saw a link to this somewhere i didn't read it yet yeah. though yeah yeah i really i i'm but maybe we shouldn't have brought it up because i feel like we could talk about like this for hours um but yeah everyone go read that it's in it's in romper it's good shit everyone i've recommended down city to has loved it and i i typically don't read a lot of true crime it's really not i mean true crime i feel like is underselling what that book is it is it's um, mostly it's like it's a memoir but you know it's a memoir but i mean and even if you don't read a lot of memoir i would just say read this book it's it's an amazing an amazing book it is it's it's awesome i can't wait to read whatever she's going to do next so uh so how's your week my week is good i you know like i'm I'm finding ways to fit writing in even more than I, than I was before. So I'm like, I'm writing like a fiend. Like I'm, I'm writing in the mornings and like at quiet time, like I always do. And like after dinner, if I have time, like I'm writing as much, any free time I have, I'm filling it with writing, which is kind of great because it keeps me connected to what I'm working on. And like the momentum is still there. Mm -hmm. So so are that's you, been good. <clears throat> are you doing something differently than when you were drafting previously? Or is it just that you're like on fucking fire and you're just going, going, going? I think I'm on fire. I mean, like I'm fueled by rage. So that helps. Sure. Um, oh, definitely. <laughs> but I, I'm basically like taking the characters from a novel from a previous from the novel that was out on submission that didn't get bought. And I'm putting them in a whole new novel so mm -hmm. <clears throat> the work where i'm getting to know you know getting to know them or writing about who they are their relationships or like whatever that work is done so i'm able to just like go you know faster than i normally would mm -hmm. which is not to say that like that anything i'm writing is all that good but like find like figuring out the new plot and the new world or whatever is has been fun <clears throat> and I feel like I read this now I'm gonna have to Google this too. It's this essay that I always teach when I, when I teach workshops and I think it's called, I think it's called touch the bear. Okay. Um, touch the bear. I think it was in <laughs> lit hub. Uh, but it's basically like she, the, the author wrote a story and it was all about like th this character being in close proximity to a bear okay and then like being afraid to like touch it or or being afraid to like um uh like signal it or something and then but the story didn't really go anywhere and and then she realized like oh i should have the character touch the bear and that completely changed the story. And so I'm just trying to touch the bear as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just like, they got characters touching the bear all over the place. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, 
I was um, like trying to keep it together and then I was just like yeah okay yeah the bear <laughs> well you know because the character is like it's a it's a wild bear and okay let's see the title is great okay it's lit it's on lit hub it's by Blair Hurley and it says this the title is the best stories break at least one of their own rules okay and then she goes on to talk about uh Bears. Okay, here, I'll just, because it's short. There was a new story I was working on about a man at a writing retreat struggling with his love life and with his bitter relationship with his mother. In my first draft, the man has an unpleasant interaction with a lover, has a small revelation about himself, and goes for a walk in the woods. He sees a mother bear crossing the road, and he watches her, sadly, from a distance. Then I got a wild idea. What if instead of walking away, he tried to touch the bear? How good is that? <laughs> And she says it cracked the story wide open and let what was truly at stake in um, push the story into a dangerous, uncomfortable place. Uh, yeah, I. So that's what I'm touch trying the bear. to do. Touch the bear. I'm, I'm trying to touch, trying to touch the bear, which is so much funnier than touching the bear. <laughs> <laughs> what if my character tries to touch the bear? Oh my god. Yeah. So <sighs> I'm trying to be brave, courageous, and wild and absurd. Love it. Can't yeah. wait to read it. We'll see. <clears throat> You're finishing up going through your final, yeah. final, final last thoughts before you send yours out into the world. Yep. Doing the last read through. And yeah, it's been, I mean, anyone, I'm sure the majority of the people listening know the experience of like looking at a document with a ton of edits and track changes and stuff. Mm. And, you know, a lot of time spent on something. So like looking at a clean copy of this thing is like extremely gratifying it's oh, like it's like okay all right this is maybe a thing um so yeah it's been it's been fun um yeah i'm excited to be at this point regardless what happens it's like it feels good to think it's like a little bit of a hole at this point yeah the future's so bright you gotta mm. touch the bear <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you've yeah. been reading anything? Nothing? Everything? I did. I I just started Whip Smart by Melissa Phoebos. I'm not oh, sure that's yeah, how you yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that I've, the new one? No, no. new one is Girlhood. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. I've never read her, and I can't believe that. And so I I decided I would start with her first book and then go in order. Oh, cool, awesome. So yeah, um, it's great. It's great so far. I'm excited to to keep going with that. Yeah, she's definitely one of those people where it's like, oh my god, I would love to, you know, where I've been meaning to get to her work and just have not. It's a, yeah. it's a tall stack. Did she just published a book, didn't she? Yeah, Girlhood came out last month, I think. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and people love it. Yes. So excited to get to that one. That's my mission to make it through. Her her oeuvre oeuvre. Sure. <laughs> You know what I mean. I do. I do. All right. That's it. That's it. Bye. Bye. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Higley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Because there's a pandemic out there, please wear a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. <laughs>